Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talk. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is sitting just opposite me at the Lake Macquarie Hotel in readiness for poetry at the Lake Mac Pub later on. And that might be why you hear the odd clicking of pool ball and noise behind us. This is live. <laughs> so uh, multi-award winning poet Jean Kent has just had her sixth book of poetry published, The Hour of Silvered Mullet, and she's here today to read from it and talk to me about it. Jean, welcome. Thank you, Maggie. It's lovely to be here. So The Hour of Silvered Mullet is so rich in flora and fauna. At times it almost feels to me like the human is the interloper um, on on what is the natural world. Um, can, Can you talk to me a little bit about that? I certainly wanted the natural world to be very prominent. I didn't realize the human was such a a quiet presence. The whole book really grew out of a lot of walking through my neighborhood and being in places. So I suppose there's a sense of being a little bit like someone wandering through an environment and being affected by all of um, the trees and the flowers and the birds and what's happening. And uh, that's working very much on an interior level. I think that's what you're picking up, isn't it? Mm. That it's setting off memories and uh, feelings. And it's a very layered kind of experience. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, there's certainly interiority, but I think also a, con- a consciousness that I suppose the natural world is, is there, has always been there and we're walking through it. Yes, yes, and the, and the natural world is very much a reason why people are there, I think. Um, I guess another thing about that natural world being so dominant is that another really important trigger for all of these poems was coming back to Australia after living overseas for six months. And I'd, I'd started writing a lot of the poems that are in this book before I went to Paris in 1994 mm. to live there for six months. Um, but obviously I thought while I was in Paris, it would be mad to carry on writing about the Hunter Valley while I was there. But then when I, and, and I obviously couldn't, I just felt like I would go a bit mad if I tried to do that. But when I came back, and we came back from really chilly, chilly winter in Paris to end of January, summer, in Australia with people lounging around going up swimming and covered in sand and <laughs> all the heat. Um, but I just looked around and I felt quite giddy, mm. I think, seeing everything and um, thinking, how would you feel if you were a foreigner looking at this? And I felt a bit like I had become a foreigner with my eyes totally peeled and my senses very, very exposed. Mm. Yeah, I definitely felt that giddiness oh, good. <laughs> coming through the book. Can, yeah. can I ask you to read a poem which I, I think definitely typifies what we're talking about, um, The Scent of Native Frangipani, which is page three. The Scent of Native Frangipani. Fly Frangipani breath, sweet memory snuff. Out of nowhere, how brief grace unfolds. It follows me down the footpath at dusk, sent from unseen trees. I think of my father, the last husk of him, breathless, 
under that canopy of clotted cream and butterscotch. Once more, my mother's garden dapples me, her native frangipani offering knaves for butcher birds and flying buttresses for possums. A place where she promised we'd be, nearer God's heart than anywhere else on earth. The earth under my feet is shadow inked now, another day nearly written out but not yet forgotten. As I scan from soil to sky, signs the light and its silent sign of scent in the falling songs of Karawans, their winged black calling home, shy as a blessing, the first star. Frangipani features throughout the book. I feel it's um, it's almost a, it's, I won't say it's a light motif, but certainly it, it comes back. Yes, it's actually native frangipani, mm. uh, so it's um, a little bit subtler than the frangipani that most people think of with mm. the fleshy, big white flowers. Um, but it's a tr- it's a tree that grows in my mother's garden, mm. and so it has a special significance for me. But it's also a tree that is kind of dotted through people's gardens around Lake Macquarie. You don't often see the tree. You might catch a glimpse of the flowers high up, but I smell it <laughs> as I'm walking around. Mm. Yeah. Yes, I mean, that, the whole sensual experience, and I, I, again, I think this harks back to the giddy, giddy nature yes. and the way in which the natural world seems to dominate. Yeah. That, um, as you go through, is this, this almost uh, you know, huge sensual aspect of it, this, the smell of flowers, or the, yes. you know, the sound of the birds. Um, there's almost a, like a crackling feel, really immersion. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, this, the, the native frangipani scent is actually very, very critical because I was working on quite a lot of poems for the book, and then one day I did go for a walk, and it happened with the native frangipani scent, and I just had this extraordinary tumult mm. of feelings and emotions, and I loved the way it just crept up on me. That I wasn't expecting it and the scent just came and I couldn't see where it had come from. And at the same time on all these walks I was sort of trying to understand why would people want to live in this place and make it their home. And I just had one of those moments where I thought, this is it. You know, you could be in another place and you would smell this native frangipani and you'd immediately back, be back home mm. and you would get all that sensory impact of what it was like to be there. And these smells and these sounds do take you back, don't they, they, do, to, to your childhood, and, yes, yes, yes. To, to the memories that come to yes. the different places, they're all stimulated, almost Proustian. Oh, absolutely Proustian, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. If we could taste the French of <laughs> 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 It's almost like you do, because it's such a strong scent. Well, scent, and scent is a subtle thing, I mean, I think, unless you actually focus on it, you don't realise how powerful it is. Yes. But it, because we don't talk about it perhaps as much as taste, and yet it, it has almost a, a more powerful impact. It does, yes. And you don't need to know what it is, actually. You can just smell something and immediately you're back in another place. Yes, or somebody's, you know, the house that you were in, if yes. you go back after not being there. And maybe that's leaving and coming back, too, because you, when you're living in a place, you're immersed in the scent of the yeah, place, yeah, and you yeah, don't yeah. smell it. But if you leave and come back, you suddenly do realize there is yeah. a smell. Yeah. Mm, wonderful. So talk to me a little bit about the process of 
pulling the book together. Did, did you have the themes of each section in mind when you, you pulled it together, or was that all kind of um, organic? Um, it evolved organically. Um, the actual putting together of the different sections is something that happened quite late, and I have to give credit to my publisher, John Knight, at Pitt Street Poetry, who was amazing from that point of view, because he went through the whole manuscript poem by poem, and we did quite a lot of thinking about where the different sections would go. But for a long time, I actually thought I had two books here. I didn't think I had a book that was going to work with these poems as a single book. Mm. I'd started off um, probably about 20 years ago, a bit over 20 years ago, with the poems that became the kind of Wombat Town fictional sequence in the middle. Mm. And at the same time, I had what I thought was another manuscript, which was a lot more personal, and that was the old haunts going back to Queensland. And for a long time, those two just sat side by side, and I had like two half books, <laughs> which was rather frustrating. Uh, but at the back of my mind, I think I always knew that the Wombat Town sequence, although it was very much a homage to Dylan Thomas Thunder Milkwood, and mm. I would have loved it to be an entire book on its own, I knew it was kind of encroaching out into reality, and it was a funny kind of hybrid of fiction and reality. And the time, the timing of it was really slippery. It wasn't really set in the present or the past or any particular time. So I found I was writing all these kind of like balloon-like poems that we had <laughs> from it, which were about where I actually lived at Lake Macquarie and about the towns and places of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And so gradually over time, as I looked at all how all the poems had evolved, I in desperation, I think, put them all together and thought, oh, actually, they do all link up. And did you find by putting them together that, that in a way, the meaning changed? Um, the meaning became a lot more satisfying. Mm. I felt a lot happier putting them all together. Because the, the, in the Wombat series, of course, small town is oppressive. Yes. It's, yes. It, you know, it, it, it's almost farcically oppressive. It is farcical to a certain extent. Some of the things that happen seem a little bit, you know. Well, maybe, but I think that part of the reason I wrote that was that when I moved up to Lake Macquarie from Sydney, I started working as a tag counsellor in Cessnock, mm. and I was based there and went to Curry Curry to meet room. Mm. And in the first week that I was there, I walked from the college into the main street. And I just felt like I tumbled back in time. <laughs> I thought, this is so like the little towns that I grew up yeah. in in Queensland. And that's the 50s and 60s, and this was the 1980s going into yeah. it's the an, It's an interesting tension, though, because you've got this positive nostalgia and the negative nostalgia. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's really what I wanted to capture, and that's where the character of Morag became really, really important. Uh, and Morag was based on a real person initially. She morphed into a fictional character. Mm. But she gave me that kind of feeling of somebody who's in the little town. She walked into my counselling office. She was a secretarial student. Mm. And she wanted to talk about what she could do with her life. And she wanted to work on the countdown. And I thought, <laughs> she's just lovely. <laughs> this poor secretarial student who's got a whole family who's lived in this area for generations. They're not going to want her to move away and work on Countdown. But I love that idea that she thought she might. Mm. And so she gave me that ability, I think, to co- combine 
the, the being in love with the town a little bit, but also feeling trapped by it. Mm. And the small town mentality. The small town mentality, actually. Yeah, which is, yeah, have a little break. <laughs> which I grew up with, and I... I didn't have to live with for terribly long because we moved away from those little towns by the time I was 12. But I was still terribly conscious of that feeling of what it could be like if you were stuck there forever. And working with people at the council, I kept coming up against that kind of situation as well. People who didn't feel that they could come and go. Um, yes, absolutely. And people who, who actually loved being there, but circumstances of being there were really hard mm. and not really kind to them but they had got stuck there yeah. but another theme that's running through the book and it's not entirely unrelated to what we've been talking about but um, this conjunction between the ordinary you know and the extraordinary you know, it might be a fish jumping out of the water that yeah. suddenly becomes you know, which is a, I guess another motif in the book but you know suddenly becomes something quite quite you know like an epiphany really Yes, I think that's what's at the heart of really all of my writing, really. I, I really do believe that that's such a strong thing in people's lives. And everybody runs around looking utterly ordinary. <laughs> but um, what's going inside in, in their minds, in their hearts, it's just not something you can just pin down to a very ordinary thing at all. And I love that feeling. And the notion that these mullets that everybody says, we think of them as dull fish. Nobody wants to buy mullet because they're not really nice to eat. But having seen them leap out of the water at Lake Macquarie, which they do, and then they're just these sparkling silver things in the late afternoon. They're just magic. And, and I guess just the way the light captures the lake, or is it a way of looking? I suppose that's the poetic eye, I isn't it? I think it's both, yes, yeah. And, I, and I, I guess what I'm hoping to do in the poems is, is stick and find that kind of way of looking and find a, um, that way of, of writing about life so that the things that seem utterly ordinary uh, can turn out to be quite, quite wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, funny and marvellous. And, and, and you've been talking about this a little bit, but, you know, this idea of, and through the book, you know, at times, and maybe this is the quietness I spoke about in my review, this idea of almost nothing seems to be happening on yes. the surface. Just a person walking or somebody sitting somewhere or lying in bed. But underneath, there is this, you know, this huge, this huge series of things happening, playing out, flying or, you know, yeah. dreaming or perceiving. Um, so to that effect, can I get you to read more again the Tawny Fogmouth, right. which is 22. Morag and Tawny Frogmouth. Before she sleeps each night, Morag likes to fly. She thinks of the Tawny Frogmouth invisibly twinned on an iron bark branch, and she imagines herself in their camouflage of moonlight and shadows, winging over all the places she's grown from. After a swoop over Wallumbi and the grave of her great-great-grandparents, she tucks into the shelter below the Watigan. Damir lilies like splattered rosella jam drips through a rip 
been heaven's feeling as she flaps over the gaps through mixed scents of waterfall mist and trail bike dust. Then seaward across the S3, its rubies and diamonds the closest she's been to the traffic tiara. Her mother says it's the shop for Yellow as a frog mouth's eye over Swansea Channel. In the widening sky, Morag is risked by memory vapor. An airbus to Europe, the whine and shatter of a hawk jet from Williamtown, the big bellied grumble of a Catalina taking off from Rathmines. The lake laps smooth as oil over its path. And all those moss-closed flashes turn into the hurricane lamps of campers down at the point of Wanji-Wanji, place of many owls. More ex-parents honeymooned here, eons ago, and the grandparents are still just an owl's roof over the gold-shingled water tonight. Possums will be perched on their rooftop like gargoyles, they will be tightrope walking branches. Where her father, the, fa- the suburb's favourite tree lover, so often dangles, defying another widow maker. The moon rises higher, the world pales, and onto shimmering tins, his bodies bounce. Lake Macquarie is all fish scale glitter. Someone is out in a tinny, some child is still rowing home in lake. And as Morag shelters them under her guardian angel wings, dreams are escaping from the houses like films she flies through, stains of other people's lives settling briefly on her skin. Marg at fishing point, packing in her sleep for another morning's flight away. Her boy sailing full spinnaker towards their future. Her family carefully anchored here, while she tatters through clouds, computing for BHP. Twee and she, their lotus petal walls rocked by daily dentist drills, drifting into Kilburn Bay and back in tiny boats to Vietnam. Melbourne at Coal Point is awake. She doesn't sleep all night now, age 93. Listens to the radio. Other night birds ringing in with stories and answers to what did Alice follow down the hall? The spotted gamma magnolia tussled gently at the bottom of her botanical atlas. The wonderland of camellias Angelica Canis Daffodil. Laurie at Blackhall feels a dream bump the red side of his kayak, hopes that thump wasn't his heart. A dollar bird above washes down tropical colours and cicadas for a few more hours, safely dozed. Pest exterminator in residence, he prepares to note in his next family epistle. As Lois beside him, totting up the red cinders of the digital clock till tomorrow's probe is out and wonders 
know, I guess I've lived with all of this for so long that um, I'll just wait and see, I think. If I think it pops up again, I'll be nice. But yes. Yeah. So I, 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 because I got you to read that long one, I don't know that we'll have time for too much more, but I, I'd love you to read one more um, which harkens back and, and also um, really captures the nostalgia that we've been talking about. And that one is um, where the, almost as if the past were drawing us away from the present. That one's White Roses, which is 57. Yes, which is a very different poem, and it's a poem set in Sydney. So. White Roses in memory of Margaret Elliot. From the house which hosted all Sydney's hangings, long, long before you lived there, following a waft of roses, I crossed the street. After an afternoon in your garden, talking books, sharing stories, yours on the pavements of Paris, mine in the mango heat of Queensland, both in 1968. It was late. Late enough for a soft dusk to wind around my legs as I walked the short space between our houses. Too late for me to hear silent snap in the upper story where my landlord lived. On the shadowing street above the narrow stairs, a police car I went down on cautious feet through the silence, through the hollow space between houses, the sandstone cliffs dripping little ferns and mossy sweat, the stacked close walls folding into the dark above my head. Across the street, you started making spaghetti marinara. Your place was safe from what followed. The crying, farewell tape, post-mortem before the morn. Now here's your obituary. And I remember white roses snipped from your garden behind the hangman's house and how, receiving them, I missed being witness to the hanging here. After 25 years, you're a dark photograph in the SMH, like all the dead. You've acquired a biography bewildering to most of us who half knew you. Spaghetti marinara, made with clams from a tin, doesn't feature, nor do the white roses of your writing, ephemeral petals on top, tough stalks with thorns. It was late that last time I left your house and afterwards we lost touch, moved to other places and didn't keep words moving between. In your photograph you haven't aged. You're in your forties forever, austere under a helmet of Catherine Mansfield hair. You're still there in that house which stood apart from the white rose of bungalows, from the accordion sameness of terrace steps. Their private songs pleated so closely together. You're still in that place on an Annandale corner where history gagged through, where the bulbuls flashed red vents 
and the neighborhood shares news through common walls. Too late, I recross the street. Behind me, back up dark stairs. My landlord's bewildered Afghan dog comes humbling. Before us, your roses are benevolent. I love the line benevolent girls. <laughs> That's wonderful. So um what's next, Jean? Are you are you working on something at the moment? I'm gradually trying to get back into to doing some more writing, yes. So there's been a bit of a, a backlog of things. I really wanted to get this one done because twenty years probably worth of time. Not just 20 years worth because there are other things that have been done, but there are a lot of other things that are in draft form. So, yes, fingers crossed. <laughs> you know, it's a profession, I guess. I think so. I think having um, seen this book come out has liberated me and let me feel like I can go on to some other things now. Wonderful. Well, I, I think that's all we have time for today, unfortunately, but um, thank you so much for joining me, and uh, I suspect people will be shuffling in already for poetry at the Lake Max Hub, and certainly people are shuffling in here for, <laughs> for their pool, as you probably have heard. So, um, listeners, don't forget to tune in to next month's show, when we'll be interviewing Ouyang Yu, who will be dropping by to chat with me for a second time about his new book, Painting with Freedom. So, thank you very much, and bye-bye.